Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Colton Dunn began performing improv comedy while still a teenager in St. Paul, Minnesota. Dunn moved to New York City just in time to join the upstart Upright Citizens Brigade, then went to Amsterdam to perform with Boom Chicago. When he returned to the U.S., Dunn wrote and performed on Mad TV, Pretend Time with Nick Swartzen, Parks and Recreation, Burning Love, Comedy Bang Bang, The New Arsenio Hall Show, and Key and Peele. Dunn now co-stars as Garrett in the NBC sitcom Superstore, and he's also a member of Rooster Teeth's Laser Team, which is putting out its second film via YouTube Red in November 2017. So let's get to it! So, Colton Dunn, uh, let me indulge you with a question that you may not have a, a direct answer for. Okay. Uh, because I've been catching up on Superstore, and I love the interstitials with the cover bands. Oh, yeah. Have you ever been involved with any of those you know, that's musical never been, interludes? No, that, that's not really my, uh, my area of the <laughs> show, but I, I get to enjoy it just as much as everybody else when I watch the episode. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a writer's room, uh, that's a writer's room move, and, um, I really love it. You have an angle to try to sing any of the songs? <laughs> Not yet, but maybe, yeah, maybe season four, I'll yeah, try to. you should to, get in uh, on that. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. This is my chance to, you know, get a leg up from karaoke and have a professional yeah. singing credit. Yeah, finally. Did you sing at all? Are you a, are you a triple threat? I mean, I, I can sing. I have sung before, uh, never really professionally. Um, but Music, uh, musical improv wasn't done. A lot of musical improv. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, I do a lot of karaoke. I love karaoke. Um, What's your song? Well, my biggest uh, my biggest song was Sister Christian by Night Ranger. Oh. And I was lucky enough to do that on the Comedy Jam on Comedy Central uh, oh, in their uh, past season. Okay, so you do have a singing TV credit. I do have a singing TV credit, yeah. So there should at least be some Sister Christian in Superstore. I mean, it, you know what? Like if Night Ranger is willing to sign uh, on the dotted line, we'll do it. Oh, really? I thought, I thought part of the trick was if you do a cover and it's less than 20 seconds, you can get away with it. Uh, well, maybe I'll look into it. Maybe okay. I could just do it and not even tell him about it. All right, but now that we've got that tangent out of the yeah. way, <laughs> I have this picture in my head trying to imagine you and Nick Swartzen as scrawny teenagers doing improv <laughs> in Minneapolis. <laughs> what, <laughs> what was it really like? Uh, it was great. Uh, you know, Nick and I met in uh, high school, and... Um, both of us auditioned for this thing called Comedy Sports uh, that, that was doing a high school league. And we were sophomores in high school. Uh, and we both got in it, and we both really liked it. And we liked it so much that it kind of became both of our focus. And so I had before been playing basketball. I was really into basketball, and I quit the basketball team. And Nick was really into skateboarding and hung out with, like, the skater kids, and he kind of stopped doing that. So both of us sort of lost our friend circles. And then just sort of became each other's friends and doing did comedy. Uh, it was great. Now, were you the only teenagers in that 
in that comedy sports group at the time, or was no, it all it was, young people? No, it was all young people. It was a high school league, so oh, okay. they had uh, they had kids from all over uh, the Minnesota area. Mm-hmm. Um, we were obviously from St. Paul Central. Um, we had some other kids from outside outside in Minneapolis, um, and we would get together on like. Sundays at two and have comedy sports shows for our parents, uh, and uh, it was a blast. Did you already know at that point that that you and or Nick would go on to bigger, better things? Definitely, we both did. Uh, we both decided. Well, we didn't know we, we didn't know we were going to be do bigger and better things, but we both kind of. I remember one day we were kind of walking home from school and just having the conversation like we just want to do comedy, man. This is like the best thing ever. We got to figure out how to just do comedy. So then, about was about ten years later that you reconnect with him for pretend time. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we'd always been stayed in contact, but that was probably our next performance together when we did a uh, we did a sketch uh, called um, I believe it was called Going Green uh, for Nick Swartz's pretend time. And what was what was that about? Going Green was about two stoner kids in high school who are kind of checked out of class while their teacher's talking, but then he starts talking about recycling and the importance of going green, and they perk up, and they're like, what'd you say? Going green? What you talking about? And he's like, well, if you guys want to find out about going green, you can go to the recycling plant. And so these two stoners go to a recycling plant, ask for a tour, and the whole time we're asked, we want to know where the weed is. Uh, And I believe it's actually Brian Husky is the tour guide who has to inform us that there's no weed at the recycling plant. No, you don't really recycle weed, anyhow. Yeah, we were very upset. You kind of bogart the weed. You don't recycle the weed. (laughs) Now, I've also, you know, reading up on you, you kind of happen upon the UCB by happenstance. Um, or did you? I, I sort of. You came I mean, to New I York suppose, and you yeah. saw an early one of the very early UCB shows. Yeah. But was that something you were seeking out, or how did you happen upon them? Um, I'm trying. You know, it was actually a friend of mine. I believe it was my friend uh, Eric Noble, who was a comedy buddy of mine from Minnesota, mm-hmm. and he was out here doing the film program at NYU. They did a summer intensive, and so I kind of came out and just crashed on his dorm room right. floor, and. Uh, he had heard about this group called the Upright Citizens Brigade that was doing a sketch show, and they did it at this theater that was above the KGB bar um, called the KGB Room. So we went there and watched the show, and uh, yeah, I think from that moment on, I was like, oh man, this is hilarious. I haven't seen sketch comedy like this before. And then I went back to New York, uh, back to Minnesota, and had to start college. And I stayed in college for about two weeks, and right. then I dropped out and moved out here. Because com- comedy sports is there's comedy sports and theater sports, and they're more short form, like whose line is in anyway. Exactly. Games, whereas UCB is all about a different finding the game. Well, sure, you know, and I, I had actually not even seen their improv when I came. You I just saw I, a sketch I saw show. their sketch show. Um, so then, once I came out here. Then I started learning more uh, long-form improv uh, from some of them, and uh, yeah, I, f- I fell in love with that too. Did it? How did it feel going from the short form to the long form in the very beginning? Did it feel like uh, it wasn't too hard for me? Um, you know, um, I had already been in a group in Minneapolis where we we were doing long form without kind of knowing that that's what we were doing. We because we had done comedy sports, but we sort of started our own group called the Bad Mama Jamas. And we would just do scenes, and we were like, let's do scenes for a longer period of time. Okay. Uh, we didn't really have, like, the structure of the Herald 
uh, or any kind of structure to it. We just improvised. Sure. Uh, very freeform montage style. Um, so when I found the structure, it actually made it easier what I was already kind of doing because it gave me a, a form to sort of play with. Well, that's one of the things I've noticed going to Del Close Marathons year after year is when you see the groups that are not UCB affiliates come in, their approach to improv is so different from what the UCB teaches. For sure, yeah, you know, and, that's, and also if you, even if you travel, if you get a chance, you, you go down to Atlanta, they have a really cool improv scene there, and, you know, their approach is totally different. You go to, like, Austin, Texas, they have an, another cool improv scene, a lot of real character-based improv. Um, you know, it's really fun how different cities have sort of adopted kind of just their own and created their own different styles of uh, improv, the things that they sort of find, uh, you know, more most important. What kind appealed to you the most in the beginning? Uh, just getting on stage, getting on stage and making a crowd laugh. That's, you know, that was the most appealing thing. That was kind of the, the thing I was... I was seeking out to get more and more of. You know, some some improv groups or teachers uh, shun that that kind of performance. They're like, "Don't go for the laugh. Go for the art." Oh, okay. It's well, <laughs> you know, all right. You know, I, I you know, I, I certainly will respect that. That's what you know. Some people will say that they're doing, but uh, at the end of the day, I think the ego is driving, and everybody wants to. Be did fun you there. did you stay in Minnesota for all of college, or did you? No, I dropped, out. I, dropped, I dropped out of college after two weeks, and I moved to and I moved to New York. Got a job at a video store. Oh, very nice. And did you immediately start signing up for UCB courses? Or? Well, UCB wasn't doing courses when I first moved out here. They okay. were just doing uh, sketch shows. So what was your um, plan? I was, Get the job I, at the video store, and then what? And I did, and I did comedy sports. There was a comedy sports out here. Okay. Um, I, did, I did, started doing stand-up when I came out, so I did a lot of open mics. Uh, and then when UCB opened up... Uh, they had classes, but I couldn't afford them. Uh, so I signed up to become an intern and ended up interning. <clears throat> so this way is what, 98, 99? This would be 98, yeah. And I basically interned my way through the program. Uh, and I also started working with a theater called Chicago City Limits uh, that may or may not still be doing shows here in, right. in New York. I'm not sure. But they sort of it's, did like a short form and slash sketch show. Uh, but that was actually a paid job. So, oh, nice. Uh, after a while, I was able to get cast in that. And so I did work there. I worked what at is, the video uh, store. And Chicago I, did I know Paul Shear was exactly. involved. Exactly, Paul Shear. Were you there at the same time as him? Or I no? was there at the same time as Paul Shear. Yeah, Paul Shear, Victor Varnado. Uh, a ton <laughs> of people did it. Uh, Sean, uh, Sean Conroy was yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, most of the people I've talked to who, who have come out of Boom Chicago went from Second City or I.O. Yeah. How did you end up going from um, New York to Amsterdam? They, they just happened to come out here to hold auditions. Mm -hmm. And it was about a week after I had a breakup uh, with a girl. <laughs> and so the idea of just like being able to leave the city was mm -hmm. the, and the country was like the perfect thing for a, a guy who's just gone through a, a breakup. How long had you been doing improv at that point? Uh, at that point, I mean, I, I started doing improv in uh, 93. Okay. And so at that point, I had been doing it, and it was 2001. So at that oh, point, I had been doing eight years. Okay. Um, but I was still fairly young. Um, and uh, yeah, I booked that job and flew out to Amsterdam and had a great time for two years. I thought those were like one-year or three-year contracts. Uh, 
Well, it depends. It depends on what kind of contract the person wants to sign up for. So okay. I did a one-year contract, mm-hmm. but then I but then I renewed my contract okay. and decided to stay more. How much did you know about Boom Chicago's? Nothing. I knew nothing at all about it. <laughs> I didn't know what so, it was. I so had no was, idea. I looked at their website. That was like all that I knew about it. So them. it was just to get the hell out of town. Got the hell out of town. <laughs> Who was who was part of the group when you first joined? When I first joined Boom Chicago, uh, there was um, Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. uh, Nicole Parker, uh, Brendan Hunt, uh, and then some of the guys who are still are at Boom Chicago uh, today: uh, Greg Shapiro, uh, Rob Andersplort, and uh, a guy named uh, Pep. Pep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure if you're in Amsterdam, you should go, yeah. hey, you know Pep. John oh, yeah, Rosenthal, Pep. yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you before you realized that you were part of a big thing with Boom Chicago? Well, I That mean, they actually had some stature. I mean, kind of right away, you know. It was sort of one of those things where I got out there and I was like, I got pretty intimidated. Because you kind of go there and they're like, okay, once you get settled, you know, come in and watch the show. Um, and, uh, you know, see how it is. And so... I came into town, and uh, I sat down. They're like, oh, you, you get a free dinner when you watch the show, so order whatever you want. I order a burger, and I'm sitting there watching it, and they were doing, like, the cleanest short-form improv comedy I've ever seen uh, and really overproduced. So, like, they had, like, lights and fog machines, and, like, it was very intimidating. Um, was that was that more intimidating than the, just the cultural shift of being in the Netherlands? Uh, you know, it, it actually was because culturally, it was because Amsterdam is such a tourist town. Um, it's not that big of a culture shock. Like the, you get a little bit more as you just get more into the Dutch culture and stuff. But every day I was at the theater, and every day I was with other Americans, and so. You know, it wasn't really until I got really comfortable with the show and then started, like, venturing out a little bit more into into Holland that I started feeling a little more of the culture shock. Okay. At that point, was Boom Chicago already a pipeline to Mad TV? Uh, it was... It had just become that, I think. Because uh, Ike Barinholtz, his last day was my first day at, at uh, Boom Chicago. And shortly after going back to L.A., I believe, is when he got on... So you were Ike's replacement. Yeah, I replaced Ike. Multiple times in my life, I've replaced Ike Barinholtz. Once at Boom Chicago, and then when I moved to L.A., I replaced him in his uh, house that he rented. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, But if that that first day, you're there, and Ike Barinholtz is, is leaving, and he's getting the farewell parties, and he's going to America to get a job in L.A. on TV... Are you thinking, oh, you know what? not only am, am I intimidated by the people that are working on stage, but now I'm excited that there's, there's a light. It definitely felt like this would be a place where I could really cut my teeth at uh, performing and get uh, really good at it. Uh, I definitely, it definitely had that energy, but it was also somewhat in a bubble. So, you know, a lot of times what, you know, it, people will go out to Boom Chicago like, If they hire somebody out of Los Angeles, it's very hard to keep them in Amsterdam because they're sort of aware of that they could be going to pilot season, they could do all this. Right. Well, I came out from New York, and so I was sort of already in that mindset of, uh, well, I don't need to go to L.A. I I enjoy kind of doing the craft. But now I was doing it at, like, such a professional level. It was really making me good. And, you know, and you're isolated. And so I wasn't even really thinking so much about, like, 
okay, and then, you know, this is going to lead me somewhere. Because, um, like, they don't necessarily... It's not like Mad TV or any of those shows came to Amsterdam to uh, hire people. Uh, it was basically people came back from Amsterdam and then would go out and audition. And because they had been performing solid for so long, right. that they were able to perform really well. And like you said, the shows were very slick and... Very slick, yeah. They so, still are. So, you know, when you go to an audition, coming from a slick sketch improv scene that kind of shows in an audition. It really helps, you know, a lot of stuff. And even and even not that, even just sort of the practical stuff. We did a lot of corporate shows. Okay. Uh, and a lot of times we'd be doing a corporate show and we'd get the script for the show on the train ride to the show. And so on the train ride, we'd have to learn these like really ridiculous scripts and they're corporate shows. So it's like you're making jokes about the people who work at the company and stuff, but you right. have to like remember these scripts and go perform and the names. them and all the names. And so that just really helped my brain in the sense of learning scripts for auditions or, you know, when I get to set, you know, on the show, even, even to this day, uh, you know, I, I rarely read a script the night before uh, I perform it. How how quickly or how long did it take in Amsterdam before you stopped feeling intimidated? Uh, oh man, I don't know if that ever happened. Really? Because we got like a whole another, you know. Because after uh, you know people started leaving, then we get a whole new wave of performers who are also really great: Heather Campbell, Susie Barrett, uh, Jim Woods. Uh, like really funny people, so you were always you always had to like keep your game up. Okay, so what was the point for you when you decided you were ready to come come back and and give it your um, shot? I was and- out there for about two years, and um, yeah, I just kind of was like you know kind of got just the itch to like oh let me go back. I also was a little homesick. I love uh, the United States. I like the food here. Um, so, uh, you know, I came back came back to New York first for about a year. Okay. So you didn't um, go straight to Hollywood. Didn't go straight to Hollywood. First I came back to New York, and I hopped back on a Herald team and uh, got a job at, with MTV doing MTV Boiling Points. Okay. And did that for about a year. But then kind of after that, it was sort of like one of those you, you can never really go back. You know, um, I, left, I left a month after 9-11. And then I came back two years later, and New York had changed, you know, quite drastically. So uh, it wasn't really the same city anymore, and you know, I broke up with a girl. And so was nine eleven part of the breakup too, or no, 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 no. no. Okay, Uh, I mean, it it is, but uh, but then you know, but so again, you know, city's not the same. I'm you know single again. Let's go. Let's go to LA. And when you went to LA, did you have a plan? Were you like... Not really. I didn't have much of a plan. Uh, so so uh, what did you end up doing it? Um, I, in 2004, I decided to go to L.A. I, first thing I did is I had to go to Minnesota to get my driver's license. That's where I'm from. So I went back right, to Minnesota. Because you probably didn't drive at all in, when, yeah, in New my York. My license has, it had expired. I didn't drive out here, and I didn't drive in Amsterdam. So I uh, went back to Minnesota, got my driver's license, bought a car, and... Uh, and then just drove out uh, with probably around like 250, 300 bucks and drove out to LA. And I crashed on uh, Jordan Peele's couch for about six months until, uh, let's see, I started teaching when UCB opened up out there. Okay. Um, then got a writing job on SNL, or sorry, not on SNL, on Mad TV. And that was it. At what point. You know, being a writer and an actor, 
was there a point where you thought you might get pigeonholed as just a writer and not get acting there was. parts? Uh, yeah, there was. You know, I, I was I, I I was doing fairly well in, in comedy writing, and especially after Key and Peele, uh, you know, I had a lot of opportunities for more writing. Uh, but I did really like performing, so I kind of had to really focus in and you know be like, look, I really I really want to act more, I really want to perform more. Uh, was that something you're telling yourself, or was that something I you're telling tell you? My, were- I had to tell myself, and I also had to tell my reps. Right. Um, you know, but yeah, but it really, you know, you it is something that can happen, and I would see it happen. You know, I would see I'd work with writers who were really good performers, but they had just done so many writing jobs that at a certain point, it was just like. They're a writer now, and that's right. you know the only way that people see them. So you know, I felt like it was really important for me to like work at work uh, to uh, to get on stage and to get in front of the camera more. So what what uh, practically did you do to? Uh, well, I told my reps I wanted to audition more. Uh, I when I got a writing job on the new the Arsenio Hall show, the redo. Oh right, you were on I that. I wrote part of myself that. into a lot of things. <laughs> Uh, and, um, you know, that was about it. I just tried to be... Was Arsenio an easy boss to work for in that regard, in, in terms of writing oh, yourself yeah, into, into bits? Oh, yeah, Arsenio was great. He was awesome. Um, you know, that guy is really an amazing performer and uh, a really great guy. And then, you know, since you had been working with Jordan for so many years in the variety uh, capacities, after Key and Peele was... Was he any kind of counsel or advice to you in terms of? Uh, sure. I mean, it, you know, I think that uh, yeah, I think that he definitely was. Always, he's always been. Uh, in, but know, in terms a good of friend of mine. But in terms stuff. of your acting career, he was definitely supportive of it. You know, mm-hmm. he, he. You know, again, I, I was with him at, at Boom Chicago, so right. we would perform together all the time. So I mean, we never really had a conversation about it. Oh, okay. Per se, but I think that he just knew, as knowing me as a friend and as a fellow. Uh, comedian that he knew that I wanted to perform. With. So what was the what was the first thing that turned the tide in that respect? Was it Parks? Uh, well, or Parks, was it, was Parks it something before helped. Parks? Uh, Parks and Rec definitely helped. Um, you know, but uh, probably what what it really was was just pilot seasons. <clears throat> and I started doing pilot season as an actor, and I was and I would get I got started booking them. But okay, so I'd get onto a pilot. It just wouldn't get picked up. That happened a few years in a row, and then finally I got you know I got cast on Superstore, and it did end up getting picked up. What was your first pilot season like, though? My very first pilot season was when I first got to LA. It's a very little thing that I did, <laughs> and I got cast in a show called Brothers. Okay, which was a show. Um, with uh, who is it? Uh, Michael Strahan. Yes, on Fox. Yeah, and um, there was a wheelchair in that show too. Wasn't that's there? right. That's right. Well, yeah, that actor, uh, you know, and he used it. He actually uses a wheelchair in real life. Uh, Daryl Chill, mm-hmm. and he is hilarious. Um, and so, I got cast basically as as Daryl's assistant okay. on the show. Well, I did the first the pilot episode, and the show got picked up, and super exciting times. And uh, I couldn't believe it. And then, and then when they went to series, they cut my character out. They cut like me, and they cut uh, Lisa Lampanelli was like another like okay. person who was in the pilot. They cut her character out. 
And uh, how, do, how do they tell you that happens? Do they tell you or does your agent? No, your, agent... Their, your rep calls you and is like, yeah, you're not doing that show anymore. But it was like literally a week before. I had already I had been purchased a ticket to go to the upfronts. And it was like a week before that. They are like, yeah, you're not going. And I'm like, but they gave me a ticket for the upfronts. And they're like, yeah, I know, but you're not going. And so that was that was actually a pretty big blow. And that, you know... Fortunately, unfortunately, that you know that that made me really focus on writing, right. and then I you know got more writing work, and then I you know decided to st- take another stab at it, and then I started doing you know different pilots, and so I did like I did a pilot with um, Rob with uh, Riggle, Rob Riggle, and uh, it was a pilot where they had already shot most of the pilot. But then they wanted to do some reshoots, so they created these other characters okay. uh, that were kind of his friends that he would go golfing with. And so in the pilot, I'm just hanging out with Riggle on the golf course shooting the shit. Right. They need B stories. Uh, huh? They need B stories. B story, basically. And then uh, that one didn't get picked up. So then I do another pilot next year. Again, Rob Riggle's in this one. Uh, and it was also with um, Rob... Uh, Rob, um... Cordry? No, no, no. This is this is like a major Rob. <laughs> it's a major Rob. A uh, major Rob. Low. That. So this was oh. a... Yeah, Rob Low. Wasn't they were tennis? Yeah, they were tennis guys. Oh, that was, yeah, I, I remember because I, I thought that one was... On the course. That was one that all the, tr- all the trade websites said, oh, this one's probably going to go. It... it, it it did. It seemed like it was going to go, and I'll be honest, I thought it was super funny, and I would have loved to do it because I was basically kind of doing my Parks and Rec character, the animal control guy, mm-hmm. but I was the guy who watched the grounds at this tennis course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a super fun one, and also a very funny Hollywood story because it was, uh, I had just gone shopping at Trader Joe's, and I was driving home and unloading my car, and my phone rang, and it was from a an unlisted number and I normally don't answer that because it's like a right, telemarketer somebody, or... telemarketer or somebody you owe money to <laughs> but I was like ah whatever I'll answer it and it's this guy and he's like hi Colton it's Rob and I was like okay and he goes yeah it's Rob Lowe and I was like alright yeah okay who is this and he's like it's seriously it's Rob Lowe I, you know, I really like what you're doing on, on Parks and um, have this part I want you to take a look at so I hope you'll come audition for it. Oh, right, because he was on Parks, too, yeah. toward the end. So I did. So I was like, oh, of course. Of course I'll go audition for it. Uh, yeah, and I ended up doing that one, but didn't go. So, you know, then the next pilot season came. That was Superstore. That one went, and, uh, yeah, and I am doing that. When you have an experience like that first pilot season where you get on a show that gets picked up, and then you get dropped <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right when they announce it, how does that how does that prepare you for all these these other pilots? Well, you don't take anything for granted, that's for sure. Um, I mean, you know, we're in, you know, halfway through shooting season three, uh, Superstore. And, um, you know, I am still to this day, I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't take it for granted. And I'm always ready for for that call to come in and be like, well, you know, we love Garrett, but he, we're killing him off or the show's done. So, you know, it's. You know, you never, you never, you get, the, you get the part, but you never get it. You know, right. so it's always, you're always on the edge. Does it amaze you that in 2017 you can be on a network sitcom that's in its third season, where it seems like 
it's so yep. tough for any shows on network to work. It's incredibly, I'm incredibly fortunate. You know, it's, a, it's an incredibly lucky show that we were able to do that. Um, and then we're doing 22 episodes. It's like, you know, a lot of shows are, you know, doing like shorter seasons and, you know, um, you know, and obviously with like Netflix and uh, Amazon and stuff, uh, you know, it's sort of a different world television wise. But uh, so, yeah, it's, it's extremely lucky and very, I'm very fortunate. There's an episode uh, earlier this season where Jonah is trying to find out how Garrett got in the wheelchair. Yes. Does it matter to you what the story is for Garrett? Uh, I mean, it, it does. Uh, I don't know. I still don't know what it is. We still haven't, you know, broached that. And I think part of it is kind of what, uh, you know, Garrett talks about in that episode. If he doesn't want to be put in a box. So, I mean, sure, I'm curious to know why. But also for me, that's like such a small part of all the attributes of Garrett um, that, you know, I rarely think about it. You know, even okay, when I'm so on set, you know, it's like... You know, yeah, not- he's using the chair, but I'm, you know, I'm completely engaged. Uh, you know, um, you haven't built, you haven't built a backstory in your head, though. No, I, you know, I, I haven't really built too much of a backstory uh, for myself. Um, other than that, other than that, Garrett is, uses a wheelchair, and he still is dope. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's more important that he's dope. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you've also got these laser team movies, which... You're right. Uh, for the olds, for the old people listening, uh, it's a, a movie. Now, a sequel is coming, Laser Team 2, that's fully, like, online. It's part of the YouTube red, yeah, full this screen is Definitely for generation. the olds. This is the future movie. So, <laughs> we did Laser Team... The first one, and I did it with this uh, company called Rooster Teeth. It's a great company based out of Austin. And they actually crowdfunded uh, through uh, Indiegogo uh, the money for the original Laser Team. Okay. And at the time, they had raised more money than anybody else ever to make a movie uh, through crowdsourcing, um, crowdfunding. And... uh, and I and I didn't know really. I knew uh, Red versus Blue, which is sort of one of their bigger, uh, right, their bigger web, their bigger shows. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really know who Rooster Teeth was, uh, and they just sort of brought me in as an actor. And I had such an awesome experience. I went down to Austin. We shot this like zany, you know, screwball sci-fi comedy, uh, and it was a blast. It was super fun. And then the movie came out. And again, just like you know, Rooster Teeth does, they sort of do things differently. So they did this great way of having the movie released to theaters. And basically they would have their fans contact the theater, tell them they want to have a screening of the movie. And the theater would tell them how many people, how many tickets they needed to sell. And if they sold that many tickets, it would play in that theater. Oh, wow. And they did that all over the country, or all over the world, really. And the movie played all over. Well... Towards the end of you know the movie, obviously YouTube, uh, who is a close relationship with Rooster Teeth the company, right, um, was you know really starting to work with YouTube Red, and so then they came on board, and we were really fortunate enough to have YouTube Red really like the original movie and really get behind doing a sequel, uh, and so the second movie is made through uh, the YouTube uh, Red Studio. And it's going to be released exclusively on YouTube Red on November 22nd. Uh, and so I'm super excited about that. Uh, the sequel's 
just as zany and just as screwbally as uh, the last movie. Actually, a little bit more. Uh, it gets pretty ridiculous, and uh, yeah, Laser Team goes to space. With the future of TV and the future of film kind of changing in front of our eyes with, with YouTube and other streaming technologies, does it feel different for you? for you when you're on set for something like Superstore than, than it does when you're on set for something like Laser Team, or is it all kind of... Uh, I mean, it, not necessarily for the on the inside, as far as like my performing and stuff, it doesn't feel different, but obviously it's different scopes, you know, you're on a network show, it's very... Like, that system is in place, and it's a big system. You've got your crew, you've got all your, you know, your uh, ADAs and your, D, your directors and, you know, the whole writing team. And then something like Laser Team, it's like it's you know Rooster, it's Rooster Team, and they you know for the second movie they actually brought in a really like awesome crew, and they're super tight. But you know they're also like they built the whole set in this like warehouse where they all their studios are, um, and it very much has kind of a uh, I don't want to say home movies feel to it, but homemade you know like it really has this kind of like we're we're down here we're in Austin we're gonna make you know we're making it on our own. And they're kind of building the system mm-hmm. that the movie's made in, as we're at something like Superstore. The system's in place, and we're just making a show in right. it. But I guess the end result, the you can't is the end result probably isn't as noticeable. The difference as as Not it is these when you're days, especially with technology. Right. You know, you can be on a you know a set that's been shooting television shows for uh, you know a hundred years, and you could be on a a set that just, well, used to be an airport. You know, ten years ago, and it is now a movie studio, and the end quality, you know, from the content to the quality of the just the effects, is not that much different. Right. So, you know, I usually like to ask my guests for some some advice that they can pass along to the kids out there listening. Okay. So, for that teenager in Minneapolis or St. Paul, probably St. Paul, not Minneapolis. Okay. St. Paul Central. Yeah. For that for that 16-year-old there who wants to get into comedy, obviously the the scenery is completely different now than it was 20 years ago. Sure. But would you still give them the same advice in terms of getting into into the business? Um, well, I mean, I would. It wouldn't necessarily, the advice wouldn't be just do what I did because that path that I took was a path from back then. Right. And now there's uh, other paths. But I think the idea when you want to get involved, especially with something like comedy, is just to get out and do it uh, and try to find the avenue that works best for you. We're in a really lucky world where there's a lot of platforms that people could perform on, whether it's you know something like a YouTube thing or a theater, you know, comedy theater that they find, you know, or just becoming like an Instagram story celebrity or, you know, Snapchat. Like, there's so many different platforms. And I think the idea is just to keep trying to do stuff. The biggest, uh, the biggest hindrance, the biggest hindrance to most of the comedians that I've ever worked with that I thought were super funny but then kind of never went on to do it was they would just kind of stop themselves. They'd have a... A script they wanted to write, but they never wrote it. They had a show they wanted to do, but they never put it up. A uh, video they wanted to shoot, but they never shot it. Um, and you have to just do it. And you can't be a perfectionist about it. You know, uh, It's okay to be a perfectionist, but you have to let yourself hurt a little bit. You have to let yourself finish a project and then learn from the mistakes and then do another project. It's the only way you get better. You're never going to get better by not doing it. So I would just say plug away at it. You know, try to produce some content for yourself and then produce some content again. 
that's some great advice. Thank you so much, Colton. No I, problem. I really Thank appreciate you. it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.